invite you at this time to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 3, verses 15 through 22. Uh, Luke chapter 3, verses 15 through 22. As you recall, last time we were together, we considered this baptism of John that he administered. And we saw that his baptism, which, which took place in the Jordan River, taught us, taught the people of his day that Jesus, who was about to come, about to start his earthly ministry, was going to bring his people to a new and better promised land. We also saw this baptism was a baptism of, of repentance. They were called to bear fruit, and it was a baptism that called the people to faith, faith in Christ. Well, now we pick up the narrative, and we see that the people are starting to think, well, maybe this is the Messiah. Maybe this is the Christ. He, John has, has um, gained quite a following at this point. So if you please turn your attention now to Luke chapter 3, verses 15 through 22. Hear now the word of the Lord. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all that he locked up John in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove. And a voice from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May the Lord write his word upon our hearts this evening. Well, the metaphor, a double-edged sword, refers to something that can have both a favorable outcome or an unfavorable outcome. Now, I don't know the exact origin of this metaphor, but I would imagine it has something to do with the fact that a sword, a double-edged sword, can both strike the enemy, but also come back and strike the user as well the favorable or unfavorable outcome. Well, baptism is a double-edged sword. Now, the fact that baptism, the sword of baptism, as it were, has a blade of blessing is uncontroversial. Almost every Christian tradition acknowledges this. You know, individuals in, in more liberal or, or nominal churches, many of them who, who may not practice their faith consistently, may not you know, attend church on the Lord's Day, Often, many of them still like to have their kids baptized, right? It's a good thing to do. Roman Catholics believe that baptism wipes away original sin. Baptists believe that it's, it's our oath to God. It's as if we are signing up to serve in our Lord's army. And the Reformed also believe that there's a blade of blessing with this sort of baptism. as it's God's promise to his people, confirming his promise to us. However, we also believe that there's another blade, a blade that signifies judgment 
This baptism is it's a double-edged sword. It has a blade that signifies blessing, but it also has a blade that signifies judgment for those who, who end up walking away from the covenant community, who apostatize, who show that they never had true faith to begin with. So I'd like us to consider that, that basic point this evening, that baptism, our, our water baptisms that we have uh, received that's administered in, in this church and other churches, is a double-edged sword. It's a blade signifying blessing as a blade signifying judgment. So before we consider both of these blades, as it were, these edges, I want, I want us to, s- to briefly set the context to, to, this bapt- uh, to this passage. Now, as I mentioned, the baptisms that you've received, the baptisms that are administered in churches today, they are not the baptism that John says Jesus is about to administer. Rather, our baptisms point to that baptism that Jesus is said that he will one day administer, this this baptism of the Spirit and fire. So as I mentioned, John just got done preaching, and he's continuing preaching, but he has been administering his baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and and people are, are starting to wonder, who is this John? Maybe he's the one. Maybe he is the Messiah, the one whom we were looking forward to, our forefathers have been looking forward to. He gained quite a a following. He came out of the wilderness. He came in the spirit and power of Elijah, and people are starting to scratch their head. Who is this guy? John puts uh, puts away their their doubts about who he is in in verse 16 as we read, uh, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Now in the ancient world, in their their climate, which was very dry, it was very dusty. They walked around in sandals on dirt paths and roads. Their feet were dirty. And so unstrapping a sandal was one of the lowliest jobs you could do. It was, a, it was a job of a slave. And John's saying, he couldn't even, he's not even worthy to do that when it comes to this one who is to come, this Christ, this Messiah. I'm not worthy to unstrap his sandals. And he continues and he says, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Again, our baptisms point to this baptism, this baptism of Jesus, which will be one of the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, what does he mean, right? Holy Spirit and fire. What, what, is, what is John getting at as he's describing this, this, this baptism that Jesus will administer? Well, it may seem on first reading that there's two baptisms going on here. There's a baptism of the Holy Spirit, which would likely seem to be one of blessing, and there's a baptism of fire, which would likely seem to be one of judgment. But that's not what John is saying here. There's one baptism. One baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire. That is, the Spirit is in the fire ministry, right? He carries out this ministry of fire. There's one baptism, but there's two possible outcomes that that can arise out of this one baptism. For some, they'll be baptized by the Spirit's ministry of fire unto blessing. For others, it will be a baptism of the Spirit's ministry of fire unto, unto judgment. So one baptism, two possible outcomes. The immediate, re- immediate reference of this, these words of John, is, is Pentecost. 
You know, at the beginning of Acts, we read that Christ goes up to be, uh, to ascend to the right hand of his Father, and who comes down? The Holy Spirit comes down. Christ sends his Spirit, he floods this earth with a Spirit, as it were, and this Spirit is going to exercise a ministry of, of blessing to some, judgment to others. It's very interesting that in Acts chapter 2, right after Pentecost, the Spirit's been poured out, we read that the people of God, they started speaking in tongues of fire. So we see that, that linkage with that imagery of the Spirit and fire. So this baptism that Jesus will administer, this is a reference to Pentecost, Acts 2, when the, the world will be flooded with the Spirit. Now, what lies behind this idea of this pouring out of the Spirit, uh, fire that will be one of blessing for some, judgment for others, is this idea of trial by ordeal. Now, this is a practice that civilizations practiced even before the time of Israel. And what it consisted of is if there was someone who was accused of a crime, the people would either throw this person into the river or into the fire, that would be the, the trial. And they would let the gods decide if he was guilty or innocent. If he survived, he was innocent. If he was guilty, or if he died, he was guilty. And the Bible, especially the Old Testament, plays on this idea. We see with Noah's flood, right? God pours out this flood over the whole earth. And this is judgment for some, but for others, Noah and his family, they're saved through this judgment as they enter the ark. It's salvation for some, judgment for others. The Red Sea crossing. As Israel, God takes Israel out of the land of Egypt, parts the Red Sea, salvation for the people of God, but it's judgment for the Egyptians. Even last week when we saw the Jordan River. God parted the, the Jordan River, allowed the people to go through Again, that was sort of a trial by ordeal. God could have wiped them away through, with the current of the river or allow them to safely travel through and inherit the promised land. Right? Judgment or salvation. And we even see this with the imagery of fire. So water, we see the imagery with, with water, but also with fire. God is with his people in the Old Testament through the fire, the pillar of fire which leads Israel in, 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 uh, in the wilderness. The pillar of fire is over the, uh, the wilderness tabernacle. We also see a pillar of fire after God's people cross the Red Sea. But this time, it's, it's a sign of judgment for the Egyptians. And we also see fire at Pentecost, right? The spirit is poured out, and then tongues of fire go forth. So we see this imagery of the spirit of fire can be one of, even water, it can be one of, of blessing, it can be one of judgment. So I get to now uh, zoom in a little bit and consider how this baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire has a blade of blessing. Right? It signifies blessing. So as I mentioned, in the Old Testament, uh, fire was, was associated with the presence of God. God dwelt with his people through that pillar, the pillar of fire. Uh, we see this with a burning bush. And Moses, we see this, as I mentioned, with the pillar that led Israel through the wilderness. We see this with the, the pillar that was above the tabernacle. 
And this theme gets picked up in the New Testament as well. As I, again, mentioned at Pentecost, the Spirit goes forth, and then you have this imagery of fire. In Acts 2, verses 1 through 4, we read, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together, as the disciples were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And we see the Spirit's poured out, again, in the imagery of fire, as blessing for the people of God. God is with his people in the form of, of the Spirit. Now, Christ sent his Spirit to be the bearer of gifts. Now, yes, there is a sense in which the Spirit itself is a gift, but Christ sent the Spirit to deliver gifts. That's what we read about in Ephesians chapter 4. In fact, Jesus himself said that it would be better for him to leave and to send the Spirit than for him to continue without Pentecost. Imagine that. We have it better, according to Jesus, than the disciples did while he was in his earthly ministry. And the reason is because the Spirit's the bearer of, of, of good gifts. You know, boys and girls, sort of like Christmas or your birthday, right? Those are occasions where uh, ordinarily you, you get a lot of gifts from people. People come and, and bring you gifts. Well, in a similar way, we can think of Pentecost as sort of a, a Christmas or a birthday party. The Spirit's coming and he's bringing gifts to his people. Now, it's important to recognize that there were some gifts that were only for the apostles and that apostolic era, the apostles and those who lived during that time. Again, boys and girls, it's like Christmas morning. You don't go and open up presents that are addressed to your siblings, right? You, you look for the ones that have your name on it. Well, similar way, the Spirit brought some gifts that were for the apostles and those who lived during that time. And those gifts are, are tongues, right? Prophecy, miracles, those special, extraordinary gifts of the Spirit that we see exercised by the apostles. That was for that era of the church, right? 1 Corinthians 3, Ephesians 3, we read that the apostles were the foundation of the church. We're the, we're the structure, right? And there were certain gifts that were for the foundation level layer of the church and are for that era and that time alone. We're a part of the structure, we don't relay the foundation. Right? We're not, foundation, we're not uh, in the foundation, lay, foundation laying era. But there's many, many other gifts. Indeed, arguably greater gifts, the most important gifts, are for us all. You know, sometimes the Reformed churches have, uh, are some, um, accused of forgetting that third member of the Trinity, right? the frozen chosen. If you look at our theology, you look at the New Testament, we see that our theology is, is seeps with the Holy Spirit. We can't understand, we can't make sense of our doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of the church, without the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is the one who has taken what Christ has accomplished and applied it to our lives. So the Spirit is the one who gives us new hearts. The Spirit is the one who gives us faith. We saw last week in Ephesians 2 that faith itself is a gift, something that we can't claim. The Spirit is the one who gives us justification, that declaration of God, sanctification, that inward renewal that we all are, are continuing 
to strive after. It's the Spirit who produces that. Glorification, what we're looking forward to, the resurrection of the body is a result of the Spirit. The new covenant church, union with Christ, the fact that we are united with Christ in such a way that we are right now raised with, raised uh, up with him in the heavenly places, it's the Spirit of God. The Spirit's the down payment of our new creation. The whole reason why we have such certainty of our future is because of the Spirit. The Spirit is that down payment. So yes, the Holy Spirit is the bearer of, of many, many important gifts. You may be wondering, well, how is this idea of the Spirit signifying blessing, being the bearer of many good gifts, how is that connected to our baptisms, our water baptisms, right? I just said that our water baptisms point to this baptism of the Spirit. So what's the connection? Well, our baptisms then inevitably point to these Blessings of the Spirit, the work of the Spirit. And this is what we confess in our catechism. Last week in Heidelberg Catechism uh, 69, or a couple weeks ago, it asked, how is it signified and sealed to you in, your, in baptism that you have a part in the one sacrifice of Christ and all his benefits? And it said that Christ has instituted this outward washing with water and joined to it this promise that we are washed by his blood and spirit from the pollution of our souls, as from all our sins, as certainly as our bodies are washed outwardly. See that? The waters of baptism point to the work of the spirit, the blood and spirit of Christ. So when you think of your baptisms, you should think of the work of the spirit. When you think of your baptism, you should think of the work of the spirit, all the many gifts and blessings that the spirit has bestowed upon you. These blessings which I just got done naming and, and even many more. And you know, one of those blessings which I mentioned is the preservation, the preservation in our salvation. Right? The Spirit is the one who guarantees that all those whom Christ died for will not be lost. Paul says in Ephesians 1.6 that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion the day of Christ Jesus. How is he doing that? Well, he's doing that through the work of the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who guarantees that God has no unfinished projects, that he will finish what he began. So when our own sanctification feels slow, when we feel like we're constantly getting stuck in sin and we can't get out of it, remember your baptism. Remember your baptism. Remember the work of the Spirit who promises to finish what he started in you. And our response to that, yes, it should be one of comfort, but also should be one in which we strive. We continue to strive after holiness, conforming to God's law. In fact, later on in chapter 2 of Philippians, you know, Paul says, he says that we are called to work out our own salvation. Why? What's the basis? What's the ground? For God, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So the response of know, so knowing that God is working in us through the Spirit, the response that should evoke in us is not one of laziness, but one in which we strive. Knowing that growth in this life is actually possible because the Spirit is the one who's producing it.
Therefore, our baptisms, right, our baptisms point to this baptism of Christ, the pouring out of the Spirit and the immense blessing that Spirit is to us. So he pours out these gifts in our life. Therefore, we should pray. Pray that the Spirit would continue to be poured out. Pray that the Spirit would be poured out upon our covenant children who receive the sign of these blessings. As I mentioned, baptism doesn't just wield a blade of blessing. There also is a blade of judgment. A blade of judgment. As I already mentioned, the spirit is oftentimes associated with fire, and fire is common imagery for judgment. In the Old Testament, as I mentioned, the pillar of smoke, yes, that was a sign of God's blessing, his, his being with his people for good, but it also served as a sign of judgment for the Egyptians in Exodus 14. Mount Sinai, right? Lightning, clouds, fire. That was a sign of, of terror for the people. And also, as I mentioned, Pentecost, right? Spirits poured out and tongues of fire. Tongues of fire. And yes, this is blessing for the people of God, but these tongues of fire also served as a sign of judgment to unbelievers. This is how Paul interprets tongues. In 1 Corinthians 14, this is what Paul says. Uh, 14 verses 21 through 22. He says, In the law it is written, By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. Even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. What Paul is saying is that there's a, a curse in the Mosaic law of Deuteronomy 28, which says that if the people are disobedient, God will come with a foreign people who speak a foreign tongue into Israel's land so that Israel cannot understand. Right? That's the curse. And Paul is saying that the tongues, these tongues of fire, are a fulfillment of that curse, that curse of the Mosaic Covenant for first century Jews who have rejected the Messiah. First century Jews reject the Messiah. They go to their place of worship and they can't understand because tongues of fire are being spo uh, spoken. This is a sign for unbelievers, right? It's a sign of judgment for those who rejected the Messiah. But that's very specific, right, to the first century, that time when there's that overlap between the Old and New Covenant. We, of course, are not called to exercise judgment of on on Jews in light of the, the Mosaic Covenant. That was very specific to that, that time of overlap. But the ultimate reference of the Spirit's ministry of fire unto judgment is the day of the Lord, which we are looking forward to, and, and that punishment which will ensue, which is hell. In fact, this is how uh, we see this in our passage. Verse 17 we read that his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And the wheat is referring to the people of God, those who will pass through judgment and rise unto everlasting life, resurrection of the body. But the chaff, those, are the, those who are outside of Christ, those who will experience this judgment, the Spirit's ministry of fire. 
And notice how this day of the Lord, this punishment is described here. It's described as unquenchable fire. Signifies this is everlasting, right? This is unending, unquenchable fire. Later on, Luke 14, or 13, excuse me, uh, Jesus describes this, this event, this, this punishment as weeping and gnashing of teeth. That tells us that this is conscious, unending, everlasting, conscious punishment. I think we can sometimes become desensitized to this reality. Reality that we are on a time clock. That the Lord is patient. The Lord has suspended this judgment. But that patience will run out. And his judgment is coming. This judgment is terrible. I think sometimes in our modern world and with our modern sensibilities, we can oh yeah, it won't be that bad, or let's just not think about it. But that, this day is coming. And thought of this day shouldn't make us tremble as Christians, right? It shouldn't cause doubt in our own faith, but it should create a sense of longing for our unbelieving friends, unbelieving neighbors, those around us who don't know the Lord. Right? Our mission here is a church plant. I mean, this is very in line with what we are trying to do. You know, we're not just trying to get people from, you know, Azusa Street to Geneva, as it were, right, from broader, broader strands of, of, of Christianity to the Reformed faith, but we want to see people who, who don't know the Lord profess faith in Christ and pass through judgment on the last day. And this takes all of us, right? This takes all of us. And this doesn't mean that your vocation somehow needs to be baptized in the ministry, right? but this means that we... We are called to be intentional with those around us, especially those who don't know the Lord, and have relationships. Enter into conversations, invite people to church. Because that judgment is coming. But lastly, this also teaches us that those who, who are baptized, that is those who have received water baptisms in the church of God, and have walked away, They've left the people of God. They've apostatized, as it were. They've, they've demonstrated that they, they never really had true faith. This means that their water baptisms, rather than being a means of an assurance of their salvation, is actually doing the opposite. It's a means and assurance that they're outside of Christ and thus will experience judgment on the last day. It's pointing to their future judgment. Well, 2 Peter 3, I think, really confirms this interpretation and, and sums up what we've seen so far nicely. And 2 Peter 3, verses 3 through 7, listen to what Peter says. He says, knowing, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days. Right? Scoffers will come following their own sinful desires. And this is what they're going to say. They're going to say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water, and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. That's a reference to the flood. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. 
people are saying, they're scoffers. There's people saying, are you kidding me? There's judgment coming? All things are continuing as they were from the beginning. Nothing's going to change. Peter's like, no, you remember the flood? Remember what, what we've heard about Noah and those who lived in his day? God's judgment came forth. Well, that's a picture of what we're looking forward to. But this one was going to be a, a, a judgment of fire, destruction of the ungodly. You know, that, that last day is going to be either one of immense blessing for the people of God as we enter into our everlasting rest, or will be one of terrible judgment for those who are outside of Christ. I'd like to briefly conclude then by just asking and considering this question. How do we make sure that we are blessed and not cursed? How do we make sure that the, the sort of baptism is wielded for our blessing and not for our judgment? Our baptisms point to blessing and not judgment. What do we do? Well, in verse 21, we read that Jesus himself was baptized by John. He received the baptism of John. There's a, there's a lot of imagery here, a, a lot that could be said, but it's very significant for this theme that we've been considering here. Now, this baptism that Jesus himself received from John points forward to the baptism he will experience at the end of his life. Now, what is that baptism, you may ask? Well, that's the baptism of his crucifixion. In fact, that's how Jesus himself refers to his crucifixion. He refers to it as a baptism. Listen to what he says in Luke 12, verses 49 through 50. He says, I came to cast fire on the earth, and would, it, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with. How great is my distress until it is accomplished. He's referring to his crucifixion. His crucifixion is a baptism because of what baptism signifies. Water and judgment. So Jesus underwent that trial by ordeal. He experienced the flood waters of the Father's wrath on the cross. He experienced judgment. Three days later, he rose victorious on the other side. And what we read here in Luke 3 about his baptism by John, that signifies, that foreshadows that greater baptism which he'll experience in the cross and his resurrection from the dead. Well, how so? Well, his, his baptism clearly signifies that he will undergo God's judgment, that greater baptism. He will be, undergo the floodwaters of God's wrath. But we also see a foreshadowing of the resurrection. Because you look in, in verse 21, right after this baptism, we see the Spirit of God descends upon Christ. And then in verse 22, God the Father makes this declaration. He says, you are my beloved Son. With, with you, I am well pleased. You may say, well, where is Christ's resurrection in, in those verses? Well, listen to how the resurrection is described in Romans 1.4. Listen to the connections. Paul says, Christ was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Notice the connections. Christ's resurrection is described as this declaration as the Son of God. Meaning God declares Christ to be the one who accomplished this mission. The exalted Son of God. But we also see the connection of the Spirit is present in both descriptions. 
So in Luke 3, we see this, this foreshadowing of Good Friday, of Easter, as he's baptized, and then we have this declaration that this is God's son. This is God's beloved son. What does that have to do with us? Well, we all, because of our sin, deserve the Spirit's judgment, that ministry of fire unto judgment. That's what we deserve, every one of us, because we are breakers of God's moral law, that moral order. But when we trust in Christ, we pass through judgment and inherit the blessing which Christ earned for us. Christ took the floodwaters of God's wrath that we deserve and earned the blessing of salvation in the Spirit that we couldn't earn on our own. So when we trust in Christ, we pass through judgment in Him and we inherit blessing in Him. Think of it in light of the, uh, Noah's flood, right? Christ is our ark. Right? We can think of that, that parallel. Christ is our ark. And when the floodwaters came... What was the deciding factor between perishing and living? What was entering into that ark? Everyone who entered that ark lived. Everyone who didn't died. When we think about the Spirit's judgment, the Spirit's ministry of fire, what's the deciding factor over whether that's going to be judgment or blessing? Well, it's who has entered the ark of Christ. If you've entered the ark of Christ, you're going to pass through judgment and be saved. You could even think of it as Christ is our Red Sea. Same, same idea. Christ is the means by which we walk safely through on dry ground as God's judgment is on both sides of us. In fact, our Belgian Confession says that Christ is our Red Sea through which we must pass to escape the tyranny of Pharaoh, who is the devil, and enter the spiritual land of Canaan. This raises the stakes, doesn't it, when we consider our own water baptism. When you see a baptism administered up here, that could either be a blade signifying blessing, immense blessing, or also could be a blade signifying judgment. So when we see a child, an infant baptized, of course we, as, you know, as parents, as the church, we can't, we can't manipulate the spirit, we can't give someone the spirit, but we can lay before them the means by which the spirit kindles faith. If you think of the heart as like a, a fire pit, we have the responsibility of, of putting the firewood on there, the kindling on there. It's the spirit who comes with the spark, with the fire. But we can lay before them the means through teaching, through discipleship, etc. As we wrap things up here, uh, beloved in the Lord, baptism is a double-edged sword. If you take nothing else away from this sermon this evening. Note this, that the most important thing is to flee to Christ in order to make sure that the sword of baptism is wielded for your blessing and not for your judgment. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for Christ who indeed is our ark. He is our Red Sea the means by which we, we pass through your final judgment, the means by which we inherit everlasting blessing. We pray that you would assure us with this, this great and precious promise. It's in his name we pray. Amen.